It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Doomberg was founded in May last year. Their mission? To highlight the fundamentals missing from today's economic and policy decisions. Doomberg is now the most popular paid financial publication on Substack. Doomberg provides in-depth analysis of financial and economic trends, and was one of the first publications to predict the supply chain crisis and the global energy crisis, amongst other era-defining events. I met with Doomberg on October 4th to discuss the Nord Stream sabotage and the wider question of global energy security. And after learning the origins of Doomberg's mysterious green icon, we discussed the Bank of Japan's decades-long battle with economic stagnation. And while few months were as consequential in monetary history than September, we finished by looking at UK fiscal policy in the wake of unprecedented political upheaval. And remember, to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Welcome. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things? Hi, Hayden. Uh, great to be here. Things are just fantastic. Thanks for asking. Great. Good to hear. All right. So we always start with a question that doesn't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. So I wanted to start with something on your website. I read that, and you stated on, on there that you are, I guess, trying to expose the fundamentals that are missing from many economic and, and policy decisions. Why are our current economic and political spheres particularly worthy of, of our scrutiny uh, in 2022? It's, it's a great question. And um, our Substack, you know, I think it's popular for a couple of reasons, but one of them is that we actually come from um, heavy industry. So our, we're a small team and we have several decades of experience at high levels in sort of the old school, classic commodity, you know, industries that have long been forgotten or ignored or even abused uh, in the past few years. And, and why is that? Well, we believe because our leaders are sort of pulled from academic circles and think tanks, sometimes from Wall Street, but they've sort of grown disconnected from the fundamentals of physics. So in other words, to an entire generation, lights come on when you flick a switch and food arrives when you punch a few buttons on your phone, cars start when you push a button. And um, the distance between the industries that power all of it is growing and is growing in particular amongst the sort of the top end of our leaders who mostly come from the same schools and have the similar resumes. And so there's not much in the way of fundamental science as an input into political and economic decision-making. And um, since we have that industrial experience and we're free to write whatever we feel like, unlike most people who work in industry who have public relations firms or would never take such career risk because they're worried about preserving the value of their stock options and so on, we can speak freely. And so that's, I think, why we believe uh, Bloomberg has resonated. And it's obviously very important that our politicians understand physics because as we're seeing in Europe today, when you ignore it for too long and you fail to consider like where the energy is going to come from, uh, there are no perpetual motion machines. And that's why uh, we believe it. in no small part, Europe led itself down a poor path. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can agree more on that, uh, that final point. And there's a few 
different topics I want to get back to. But let's kind of circle back and introduce Doomberg to the listeners for anyone that isn't aware of your work. And I think we can get a better understanding of your philosophy here too. So I had a quick look at the uh, the tables on Substack, and it looks as if at least you were yesterday the top paid financial publication on Substack, having only founded the business, I, I believe, in May last year. So let's return to that uh, topic that you alluded to just a moment ago. What are you offering readers that other publications aren't? And do you think there was a gap that you filled when you did go live in, in May last year? Yeah, thanks for pointing out that important milestone, which actually I think we crossed last week after a lot of hard work. And we're very proud of that accomplishment just to start from nothing with no social media footprint in 18 months and to climb our way to the number one finance uh, substack in the world is amazing. It's humbling. It's, it's life-changing. Uh, we have achieved personal sovereignty and uh, we're very grateful to the substack team and to every subscriber. And we should say up front, we are 100% subscriber supported. We accept no ads and, and no um, sponsorships. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with those business models. We just believe it's core to our brand ambition that we have complete editorial freedom because we occasionally write about provocative things. To your question then, I do believe the primary reason we've resonated so well is because of that unique industrial experience that we think filled a missing niche in the market. And uh, we view sort of our objective is to teach non-finance subjects to finance professionals. So specifically connecting science and technology to financials in a way that's pretty unique. And, and that came from my personal experience in the corporate world, where as a scientist, I was a practicing scientist and led many hundreds of scientists um, when I was an executive over my career, working on cutting edge technologies, especially around energy and energy transformation. I became known as the person who could write in plain English why it is that investors should care about certain complex topics, or just as importantly, why it is that they should avoid making investments because our team believed that the science didn't support the investment. And as I rose through the corporate world, probably, I'm not sure um, how familiar you are with corporate, corporate America in particular, but as you get higher, your job becomes more and more about communicating and less and less about doing. And so I found myself flying all over the world, you know, averaging 70, 80, 100 flights a year, and mostly just giving presentations and, and writing analyses for the board and senior leaders and so on. And so that sort of became really fun. And, and the part of my job that I love the most. And uh, the thing about Doomberg is it's truly the work of our lives. It is taking the thing that we loved to do when we were sort of slaves to bosses and um, making it the only thing we do, uh, which is why we've been so prolific and, and why we've had so much success uh, with the Doomberg franchise in part. And then the last point I'd say is um, we've been very authentic with our readers and we have attacked the Doomberg project with as much professionalism as we can muster. We are guided by a set of principles that we used as an executive and that we use in our consulting firm because before Doomberg, we had built a, a successful advisory practice. And we call that the five pillars. Um, there are five pillars to any business. And we have a, a detailed strategic plan for each of those five pillars for Doomberg. And then on top of that, most critically, we layer over the five pillars a mindset of continuous improvement, an authentic, rigorous, no holds barred, what worked, what didn't work, can we do better? What does the data tell us? Um, we're always trying to improve. And we believe that combination of factors has led to the success we're so happy to enjoy. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear your journey. I mean, we ask all founders of, of businesses whether there was a, a eureka moment, one particular event that inspired the creation of said business. I wonder whether that was true of Doomberg. Yeah, so we had a, a very good advisory business and then COVID hit. And like many small business owners, we lost a substantial portion of our revenue because we had built a concentrated book of public company executives that were 
buying our services. And when you're in a public company, the first thing you cut is variable cost. And it was totally understandable. And we lost a, a significant portion of our business and we had a decision to make. The decision we had was, do we fold up shop and, and go get another job? We were perfectly employable, um, hopefully. Or do we reinvent ourselves and uh, keep our independence? And we decided to reinvent ourselves by advising content creators who sell their products to Wall Street how to run their businesses better. There's a story as to how we decided to do that, but we did and became successful pretty quickly. We landed a few high-profile clients and really transformed their business. And our eureka moment came when um, this particular client, who was doing quite well and appreciated our help, but would probably follow you know, half or two-thirds of our advice, which would frustrate us. And at one point, he said, you know what? Why don't you guys just start your own? You're very good content creators. You clearly know how to market. You've helped me with branding and marketing and demand creation and operations and all the pillars that you talk about. You'll follow 100% of your own advice. And it was sort of a, yeah, we would. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. why, why don't we just go do this? We're capable people. And, and so two days of brainstorming around a name and, and a brand icon and uh, off we went. Yeah, fantastic. We'll completely understand you can't be too specific about kind of who the clients were in terms of names, but perhaps you can give us a flavor of the sorts of businesses you tended to work with and then subsequently the sorts of businesses or subscribers you have now on your Substack. Yeah, our content creation business was focused mostly on people who write newsletters and perhaps they have a podcast or two or aspire to do so, but mostly just helping them with the five pillars. And our view is that any business can be explained and optimized through that approach. And, and we had achieved enough success in that space. And then our primary product is newsletters. We write six to eight articles a month. And for our pro tier subscribers, which is a sort of our premium product, in addition to the articles, we offer them a monthly webinar where either we or guests come on and they get a, a chance to interact with extensive Q&A with the team as well. And, and they get a few other perks. But by and large, we are professional writers now, uh, which is kind of weird to say, considering I always sort of identified as a scientist growing up. Uh, but, but we are professional writers and we treat our Doomberg franchise as a business and we treat it with professionalism. And, and as I said earlier, um, we measure everything we can get our hands on. Um, we're data freaks and uh, we listen to the data. And so when something is working, we do more of it. And when something is not working, we do less of it. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think that probably speaks to my next question. You, I think, reference on the Substack website, there's an about section that talks about kind of the creation of Doomberg and where that idea came from. And you mentioned or prided yourselves even on the early pattern recognition. You suggested that you were able to connect dots between seemingly unrelated events, which I guess is, you know, essential to any decent or geopolitical or economic commentator. But how exactly do you detect these trends? I, I imagine this is where the data comes in, but perhaps you can give us an insight into your process. So as a scientist, that's basically what you do, especially if you work at the interface between disciplines, as I did. And um, that was sort of, you know, that one of the things we found in science is, is if you drill down too much into your expertise, it can be difficult to have breakthroughs because you get caught up in old dogmas and you just assume a certain set of experiments won't work because you're too smart to try them, if that makes any sense. And uh, we thought the same might be true over here, but, but, you know, the genesis of the pattern recognition is as a professional scientist, an interdisciplinary one. That is literally the skill that differentiates you. And so it just comes natural. And, and the, the process basically involves consuming an enormous amount of other people's content. You know, we're very generous with hyperlinking and quoting other people. We um, do that not only because it builds goodwill and it's the right thing to do, but also 
it's uh, interesting to, to tell a story and synthesize a story using other people's words. And that's a great way to connect the dots. And so we've really worked our sort of operations pillar down to a, a good rhythm. We go from idea to title. Title is very important. Um, and then sort of what are the dots we're connecting? What's the opening story? And, and we go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that certainly comes through in the content that I read on Substack. Uh, I wanted to finish this sort of intro section by referencing your your icon, Doomberg's icon. Why the green chicken? Great question. Um, so um, one of the five pillars is demand creation. And um, the way we feed our Substack is by having an excellent Twitter account to grow our Twitter account. And our magic metric that stirs the soup, as we might say, is daily impressions on Twitter. Um, how many impressions are we getting on Twitter every day because that's the very front end of how people find us and then they realize we write articles and maybe they read a preview or two and then they decide to subscribe. That's the flow, the customer journey, as uh, Silicon Valley uh, might say. And um, in brainstorming at the beginning of Doomberg, we realized with no social media presence and nothing but our faces, it's very difficult to stand out. And, and one of the adages of marketing is you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And so um, we decided to sort of build a character sketch of Doomberg, Green Chicken, Chicken Little Gets a Terminal was kind of our early tagline. And we, we imagined, um, you know, we're a bit of uh, doom scrollers ourselves, you know, and, and, and so, the, so the name Doomberg just came up as, as a word and it just stuck. It's like, wow, like, you know, you know intuitively what that means. So. Mm. And then uh, the green chicken is just this amazing, um, it's just the clip art that we colorized and modified a little bit. But when we A-B tested it with, you know, a dozen of our friends, it just, it just scored incredibly well. The instinct is people chuckle when they see it. They smile. It makes it's a bit disarming. And those stunned eyes are the are the key to the brand, again, which we, we discovered through some other um, A/B testing that we did with merchandise. And so um, once we saw it, you can't unsee it. And then now we're up to something like a million and a half or two million impressions a day on Twitter, which means a million and a half or two million times a day, that little green chicken is flashed before somebody's eyeballs. And if you can't build a content creation out of that, then maybe you should be looking to do something else. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think I think that rounds off nicely the the introduction to Doomberg for anyone that wasn't aware listening into the podcast. Let's move on to a couple of current topics, geopolitical events uh, that I was reading about on Doomberg. Uh, the first of which is the Nord Stream sabotage. Uh, so, firstly, while I saw at least initially a lot of people downplay the impact of the Nord Stream damage, given that uh, Europe wasn't actually relying on either of those pipelines uh, since the outbreak of war in Ukraine. In your article, you underlined the long-term significance of this sabotage. Perhaps you could just start by explaining this event, this moment is so, so significant. For a variety of reasons. The first and, and most urgent one is it condemns Europe to an incredibly tough winter. And it removes the most significant potential benefit to Europe of a peace deal with Russia. And as we said in the piece, even if the most you know, uh, Western-friendly leader um, replaced Putin tomorrow, the damage of these pipelines makes it incredibly challenging for Europe to get through the winter without significant power rationing and the subsequent economic crisis that inevitably follows from such catastrophes. Um, now, since we wrote that piece and um, broke overnight that um, you know, perhaps one of the two Nord Stream pipelines, Nord Stream 2 pipelines is still operable, uh, remains to be seen. A lot of confusion, as you know, uh, fog of war in the early reporting. Uh, but for us, when we heard that uh, not only had Nord Stream 2 been damaged, but Nord Stream 1 was damaged, the immediate realization that uh, this dangerously escalates uh, hostilities 
And uh, if, as we say in the piece, if open warfare on critical energy choke points is going to become normalized, the consequences of this act of sabotage will be felt the world over. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem that, at least in the short term, European energy security, particularly for those winter months, is in jeopardy. But how vital and, and realistic is it that Europe could totally wean itself off Russian gas in particular uh, in the short to, to medium term, do you think? Um, very, very low. And you could tell that by looking at the forward pricing of, mm. of natural gas. The next two winters in particular are going to be very, very tough in our view. And you still have you know, the Belgians and, and even perhaps the Germans taking perfectly operable nuclear power plants offline in a, in a weird sort of suicidal tendency that the historians will spend a lot of time unpacking, we suspect. But alas, you know, there's not much that can be done. You know, an emergency is, is a great motivator. And so um, perhaps things could come online a little faster. Red tape could be cut. Environmentalists can be tamed. We see precious little evidence of that happening on the European continent today, even still. I think to the average person on the street, the, the baseline assumption is they'll just muddle through. And uh, we have our doubts. And as you know, we've been writing about this topic for well over a year. And to see the slow moving train wreck play out has been truly staggering and sad. Uh, we have many, you know, probably more than a thousand European subscribers and many friends in Europe. And I personally visited the continent dozens of times um, as an executive and have many friends, particularly in Germany. The people of Europe have been done bad by their leaders, and the ones who will suffer the most are the ones who are least capable of insulating themselves uh, from this scandal, uh, and it's a true scandal uh, in our view. And so we feel a deep empathy for what's about to transpire. And then beyond Europe, you know, that news overnight that Pakistan can't get any gas, natural gas for the next three or four years, and the entire power grid of Bangladesh has collapsed. You know, we're exporting our problems, uh, both the inflationary aspects of it and lack of supply um, when uh, we're bidding up to be the, the buyer of last resort and the, and the maker of the clearing price. Um, so the effort to make good on, on the hole that Putin has dug in European natural gas uh, is having collateral damage in the emerging world. And then that damage is just beginning to make itself known. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, a, a backup and now a very much a primary priority, I suppose, for Europe and in Britain as well would be able to beef up their renewable energy output. But these are things that have been long uh, ignored or certainly moved to a secondary or even tertiary priority. Uh, and I'm speaking particularly here in Britain. Is that something that we can feasibly rely on here in Europe as, uh, as, as a, a way to fill this hole? So there are two challenges with that, and uh, one of them is spoken about often and the other isn't. So I'll start with the one that's spoken about often, which is intermittency. As you know, the wind doesn't always blow, and in the winter in particular, the sun doesn't always shine. Mm. And so the capacity factors for these inputs are so variable that it makes the operation of an electricity grid very, very challenging. Uh, that's why everywhere in the world where renewable power becomes a significant source of the electricity grid, for example, prices go up. Uh, it's just empirically undeniable. Germany, California, uh, the rest of Western Europe, whenever you have an abundance of intermittency in your grid, the grid becomes destabilized and electricity goes up. There's a second problem, which is to make such energy requires energy. The energy payback period, not financial payback period, are literally BTUs. BTUs in, T equals zero investment. How long does it take to get the BTUs out? Mm. This is a hyper-political number. Of course, and it depends on many assumptions like the capacity factor and so on, and whether or not you include the other costs of operating the grid that intermittency um, necessarily brings with it. But just let's just give it like the most optimistic scenario. Let's say solar has a one year payback. So you have to spend one year's worth of energy upfront in order to create 
the capacity. Okay. Um, so if you want to change 10% of your energy input to solar in one year, that means you have to redirect 10% of your energy today up front T equals zero um, in order to do that. And um, the price elasticity demand of energy is such that that would, you know, obviously spike the price of energy. Mm. Um, and so there's a, there's a certain cadence at which, limited by physics, it was, you can calculate how much energy goes into converting sand into, you know, solar-grade polysilicon. And then you have to add all the inefficiencies of industry on top of that. And then you have to make assumptions about how much energy you get. But if we just give it the most generous interpretation, the energy payback period is, let's just call it a year. Well, if you want to change 5% of your grid quickly, you have to find 5% more energy that's not otherwise accounted for to make that time T equals zero payment up front. By contrast, on an energy basis, nuclear power, because it's hugely, you know, much more energy dense and it has, you know, an extraordinary capacity factor. It's excellent baseload power. It has an energy payback period of six weeks. So when you run the math, you could convert one percent. Uh, if you take one percent of your energy and dedicate it towards making nuclear power, you could convert nine percent of your resulting energy uh, within a year. And so um, the only answer for a quick conversion off of fossil fuels must go through nuclear. It is just it's very frustrating to see otherwise intelligent people overlook this basic fundamentals of physics, which get back to the open question: like, why is it needed that we should? reconnect our politicians to a physics textbook. Uh, it's because we are literally imposing upon industry policies that are guaranteed to fail. And then when they fail, the answer is always, well, we just didn't do enough of it or we need to do more of it. Not realizing that the policy is the cause of the failure. Uh, so it's very challenging, very frustrating. At the same time, it means we, uh, we're never going to run out of things to write about. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's, that's certainly true. But that, that kind of rejection of nuclear as a possible solution here is like, I guess, to try and get into the mindset of policymakers, both here in Britain and Europe as well, how can we try and comprehend that sort of willingness to just ignore that superior solution? Um, well, uh, as the expression goes, um, something has to give, right? And we're seeing a lot of things give right now. And uh, we've tried to warn our friends in the environmental movement that the path function matters, mm. that um, you could lose the grip on, on power if you don't do this correctly, and we see that, you know, um, social unrest is beginning, you know, we're seeing, let's be frank, a rightward tilt mm -hmm. in European politics, which is predictable. Uh, and we've predicted it for many, many months, as we've said uh, on other venues, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. The people will riot. And when they riot, don't be surprised because they will. And it's unfortunate, but if you get energy wrong, you get everything else wrong by definition. And people now, um, we begin our macro analysis with the following question. Is the world enjoying an abundance of primary energy or experiencing a shortage? Because there are two completely different models and analyses that flow from uh, the answer to that question. And for many decades, we have lived in the world of primary energy abundance, driven predominantly by the revolution in the shale patch in the United States, producing incrementally more energy versus demand and allowing for a GDP expansion. And in a world where we have relative energy abundance, energy is just another commodity. In a world where we have energy shortage, energy is the master commodity, uh, as we're finding out in Europe today and as we will continue to find out as the months progress. So to the question of this opposition to nuclear power, which we have strong and potentially controversial opinions as to its origins, putting those aside, there is no path to decarbonization that does not go through nuclear power. And so if you insist on decarbonizing, you have to give something up, and that's something you're going to give up is a radical decrease in the standard of living of the population. And then roll the dice on whether they will put up with it. Um, we doubt they will.
Yeah, I think that's completely fair. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Well, I, there's there's plenty to to watch, particularly uh, in Europe, but in, in Britain as well. I mean, there's several uh, nuclear power station spots that were uh, politically opposed and weren't built. And uh, well, yeah, I mean, it would certainly make our energy storage uh, and security uh, or put it in a far better state than we are in now if they had been planned sort of several years ago uh, when they were first raised. But there you go. Let's move on to... I guess how you started the piece, um, people can read this on your Substack, but you, you kind of made links, I suppose, between the Nord Stream sabotage and 9-11, um, not regarding the severity or trauma of the event, of course, but in reference to the point of inflection, both events sort of inspired a, a pivotal or turning point or inflection point, as I said. Uh, I read a second piece on, on Substack about the yen, uh, in which, again, you start by referencing a historic event. And in this case, that was the U.S. invasion of the Guadalcanal. Incidentally, before we move on to to the yen and and the Bank of Japan and the monetary policy uh, being employed there, is that use of historic events a device you often employ? Uh, and I wondered whether, and this could be reading too too far into it, but whether it was perhaps to allude to the cyclicality of of history and geopolitics at large. Great question. So, um, as I referenced earlier, you know, as, as you become a senior executive, your, your job becomes more about communicating. And uh, read a great book once called um, Talk Like Ted. And, um, you know, because when TED Talks were all the rage, you know, mm-hmm. this was handed yeah. out in, in every corporation. And, you know, and um, it was actually quite a useful book. And the first thing that they advise you to do is um, start with a story. Mm. And uh, that stuck with me. And I, and I used it to, to good effect as an executive. And if you can start with a story that grabs the audience's attention, you've won them over. And so uh, we decided um, as part of our operations process that we would try our best to begin every piece with a compelling story. And so let me read you the first sentence of the, the piece we put out, which is called um, Decades and Minutes, which again, another big theme of ours, uh, and it's quite literally taped on the lamp sitting above my head right now, um, is, uh, is the title great? Um, because again, a great title and an opening story captures people. Mm. This is the sentence that we put at the beginning of the paragraph. For most people, 9-11 became, quote, 9-11 when the second plane hit. And the emphasis uh, here is on second. And that's such a great, tight little sentence that, that frankly, and I must confess that my editor um, rewrote. And all of a sudden, everyone remembers how they felt. Uh, and we go on to tell in the story, like, I remember exactly where I was, most adults do, when the first plane had hit, but the second one had not yet. And your mind is racing. Like in the early reports, as we say in the piece, where maybe it was a propeller plane or a prop jet, or maybe the, the pilot got lost, but boy, it's a clear, sunny day. We can't imagine how that would be. And then all of a sudden on live television, flight 171 with you know, full throttle plows into the second tower. Mm. And, and as we say you know, um, in that piece, it basically the wave function of probabilities instantly collapsed into a horrible point source of certainty. Uh, these were deliberate acts. And we felt very similarly, obviously, again, I agree, you know, uh, not on the same scale and, and trauma. But we spent a couple of hours only knowing that Nord Stream 2 had suffered a massive depressurization event. And um, you know, I was, I'm in several chat rooms, and, and we're obviously a lot of friends in industry and, and energy in particular. And we were like, yeah, maybe 
you know, it's a new pipeline. Maybe there was a design flaw. Maybe the readings were wrong. And then when the second pipeline was damaged, it was the same collapsing of the wave function. You knew in the moment that this was a very serious act of sabotage with huge game-changing implications for the global geopolitical scene. Uh, And so that's why we were inspired to start that particular piece with the story of 9-11. But to generalize, if you can find a great story that both captures the audience and sets up the reader for what's coming, and then ideally you close it you know, with a reference uh, to that opening story, which mm-hmm. we don't always do, um, then that's sort of the perfect piece uh, for us. And, um, and also we're history buffs, and I'm in particular, I'm a World War II history buff, and so got plenty of great stories and, and unknown tales. The piece we're going to publish after we're done recording this, uh, we'll have another World War II story in the beginning of it. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just fun practice. Our readers enjoy it. And um, it's hard for us to write the piece without the title. And then once we have the story in place, the piece just writes itself. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it certainly captured my attention. Uh, and we'll put a link to the Substack and the previews of those pieces uh, in the episode description so listeners can can check those out. I mentioned that the the, the second article in which you deploy that device uh, was about the Bank of Japan and monetary policy in that region. I was reading uh, an article, I think it was yesterday, Japan spent a record, I think it was just under 20 billion on intervention to support their currency, the yen, intervening in the foreign exchange market. So uh, like Operation Watchtower, which was that uh, invasion of Guadalcanal, could this be a turning point in Japan's decades-long fight against international skepticism of its monetary and fiscal policies, do you think? Yeah, that's the question of the day, isn't it? Um, it's uh, it's the widowmaker trade for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. People have long bet against um, the yen and and uh, JGBs and have lost lots of money doing so. It's almost a rite of passage among investors, and so they drew a line in the sand at, at one forty five. And we'll see if it holds. And if it doesn't hold, um, look out because you know one of the the liquidity runs. Uh, one of our favorite expressions is, "It's amazing how fast you run out of money when people think you might." And so ultimately, central bankers, like regular bankers, are playing a game of confidence. And um, for decades, uh, the Bank of Japan has been able to to beat back the hordes of investors who are skeptical of their policies and um, and have really, you know, done a, done a number on them. Um, but recently, something has changed. And so, um, you know, to draw the analogy perhaps too far, the rapid depreciation of the euro that we've seen in the past few months, because let's not forget, I mean, we depreciated from, you know, 110 to 145 in a very short period of time. If you mm. put the Japanese euro on a, on a multi-year chart, it, it's, a, it's quite a vertical push. This sort of period is the battle of Midway. And now they realize if they can't beat back the Americans at Guadalcanal, um, their first land loss would be a staggering defeat and the invincibility of the Japanese army would be removed. And uh, if the BOJ loses the 145 line in the next few weeks, Look out above, as they say. Um, of course, the currency is quoted as the inversion, and so higher numbers is a weaker currency. Yeah, absolutely. I guess looking longer term, then, do you think there are any significant ramifications of such heavy intervention to the tune of fifteen percent of their readily available funds? By the way, in a country's sovereign bond market, how how pronounced might the distortion of that market become? Do you think? Well, there's um, our friend, uh, as we outlined in that piece, our friend Luke Roman, who's a great content creator and analyst, and um, he lays, lays out three probabilities. One, Japan must find a miracle energy production solution, and, and Lord knows they're trying. Um, they're turning back on their nine nuclear reactors, and they're cutting deals with Putin on LNG, um, despite the sort of era of sanctions. So we'll see if that's enough. Two, they might reach detente with Russia, separate from the U.S., 
and basically get permission to trade printed Japanese yen in exchange for energy. Or three, they will suffer a, a late 1990s Southeast Asia style currency and economic crisis and um, feeding a, a global financial crisis. And, and so the second point is an important one, which is lost on people. So not lost on people, but many people haven't pondered it. Only the U.S. can print energy. Globally, energy is basically settled in U.S. dollars, and the only country capable of printing U.S. dollars is the United States. And so um, even though the U.S. is relatively energy independent, uh, which puts them in a great position, uh, they also have the added advantage of being the reserve currency and, most importantly, the, the currency in which energy is settled. So if, if you're the Japanese and you want to buy LNG or you want to buy oil uh, or you want to buy finished products, you first have to buy U.S. dollars. And uh, we believe, and Groman believes and others believe, that the energy crisis is sort of the tipping point that makes a reconsideration of the widowmaker trade possible. And so that's why you're seeing the currency weakening, in part. Um, we believe, again, in time of energy shortage, energy explains a lot of the variance of these moves, and currency in particular. And, and, the, and the, the currencies that are all weakening against the dollar the most are Japanese yen, British pound, and, and the euro. And all three of those regions are deeply short energy. The currency that is doing the best in the world is the Russian ruble. Russia is an energy exporter of enormous proportion. In fact, they're trying to weaken the currency and they're cutting interest rates to well below levels where they were um, prior to the war. This is, of course, quite predictable if you know physics. And um, so, yeah, that's the predicament for Japan. Europe is, in, in many ways, a worse circumstance because at least Japan is reintroducing itself to nuclear and, and um, trying its best to, uh, to cut a deal with Putin. Um, not that that's the appropriate strategy for Europe, I'm, but I'm just saying, like, um, if you're asking me the narrow question of how does this impact the currency, it looks like a pretty challenging situation. Europe itself cannot print energy either. It must settle its energy deficits in U.S. dollars. And so um, something's got to give or it will end up in scenario number three. So few months have been as consequential in, in monetary history as September and with countries everywhere trying to tighten the screw on borrowing to, to smother inflation, uh, aside from a few notable exceptions. Japan's policymakers are sticking to their guns as we've already described, but why is the yen falling not just a domestic problem, but a global one? Um, well, for a variety of reasons. And I should say up front, you know, the, the monetary aspects of economics, as much as we might be familiar with it, is not in the same sort of zone of expertise as energy is for us. And so I just want to make that disclaimer up front, although we do, we do have some thoughts on it. The reason that it's, you know, the contagion, I guess, what's the contagion risk here and how high is it? Um, and we think it's obviously substantially high. The Japanese are the largest owners of um, U.S. treasuries, for example. And imagine a world where in order to prop up yen, they have to sell treasuries uh, into a, what's turning out to be a much less liquid market than perhaps people believe. And so in this scenario where the Japanese, in order to defend 145, had to begin selling U.S. treasuries in volume, you could see you know, rates spike in the U.S. above and beyond where the Fed would prefer them go. We're basically uh, at the point where we've been squeezing on this balloon for a very long time. And the air never leaves the balloon. It just shows up somewhere else. And right now, we're seeing what's going on in Europe and in Great Britain and in Japan. And we shall see. I mean, the, the, the road out appears to be the Fed has to pivot soon, although they keep saying that they won't. So we shall see. If they keep hiking and tightening into ever-growing economic crises, there's risk to that strategy as well. And frankly, uh, to the outsider, to the sort of amateur observer like we are, uh, they seem stuck. Uh, there are no good outcomes here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the same could be true for, for different reasons, I suppose, of 
of the UK. And whilst we're on sort of monetary policy, uh, I'm keen to get your thoughts on the UK's fiscal plan uh, under the new Prime Minister Liz Truss. Um, again, you know, we don't need to go into too much detail here. I just think it's interesting for a lot of our listeners will be UK based, as am I. Uh, we have quite a heightened sort of political view, I think, of what a prime minister does in this country, particularly in regards to to the economy. What's the outside view? What's the external view from from someone based in the US, such as yourself? Yeah, uh, it's it's difficult. So, in my view, I, I have some sympathy for the new prime minister because it's not like she was handed um, <laughs> a royal flush and um, and mm. somehow didn't bet enough uh, to make all the money. You know, she was handed a very challenging situation, and um, with the hyper sort of political microscope of the the British tabloids and uh, sensationalization of of the British news, um, that's mm. a very challenging situation for anybody to handle. And uh, there's certainly been some missteps, although I would applaud her for at least diagnosing the problem of being one of energy supply and and at least in her first speech saying that it was going to be an all of the above strategy. I, I guess that the fiscal parts of it are sort of seen to be uh, introducing uh, gasoline to an inflationary fire and uh, was clearly not well received, mm. well received by the markets. And um, from what we read, a couple of pension funds got in trouble necessitating the Bank of England's uh, intervention, which you know, a good friend of ours who's a, a Substack author, um, Alfonso, over at Macro Alf. Um, we were on a Twitter Spaces mm. together, and, and he gave a great analogy, which is to let's just take Great Britain. Great Britain too cannot print its own energy; it must buy U.S. dollars. And the analogy he used is uh, sort of an emerging market economy that has U.S. dollar-denominated debt that's suffering an exogenic shock and can print its way out of it. And that's his operating model for analyzing the euro and the pound. And yeah, and the West is, is probably not as prepared to deal with such events as uh, Argentina. I'm familiar with the fact that the IMF once intervened um, many decades ago. But this is truly an exogenic shock. Um, it, it is a, quite literally, uh, energy shortfalls are the equivalent of U.S.-denominated debt. that's due urgently. And, um, and so that's why I think we saw the pound have a mini flash crash um, and, and yields yeah. spike. Um, but I, to, to to put the entirety of the blame on the new prime minister seems patently unfair, at least to us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, okay, well, um, I wanted to finish this section of the interview with with more of an abstract question, I suppose. But it does seem, at least superficially, that there there are perhaps some similarities between the Bank of England's relationship with the UK government at the moment, having to unleash that sixty five billion bond buying program that you mentioned. Uh, a moment ago, compared to the Japanese government's swift intervention post-Kuroda's yen-weakening comments, there seems to be an uneasy relationship, if I can describe it that way, between respective central banks and their governments. What do you make of that trend, I suppose? Well, I I see that trend and I raise you another, which is um, (laughs) we are anticipating significant friction between the world's central bankers and the the U.S. Federal Reserve. (laughs) As Powell mm. continues on his mission of tightening to sort of become the next Paul Volcker, um, there are victims to that policy, and those victims are starting to both feel the pain and whine about it. And um, you know, news broke mm. earlier about the United Nations calling on the Fed to pivot, and uh, we put out a funny tweet which kind of went viral for us. When does the Pope tell the Fed to pivot? <laughs> you know, everybody in the world <laughs> wants the Fed to pivot, and so there might be some frictions between the BOE and, and the government, or. Japan, or even obviously in the U.S., but I think the frictions between the rest of the world's central bankers and Jerome Powell are going to be the ones that matter the most in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, worrying times. Okay, well, let's finish the main body of the interview with our quick fire question round. So, 
Whereas all of the questions so far have been related to Doomberg uh, and the work that you do on Substack. Uh, we ask all of the guests on Opto Sessions a more generic list of questions. So just a lighthearted way to end the episode and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word if you like. The first question is, what is the most frequent mistake investors make, do you think? Holding on to losers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in good company on that one. Question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Yeah, we, we read a lot of individual content creators just because of the nature of our business. And so almost too many to name, but a few of our favorites, Grant Williams, uh, Dimitri Kofinas' podcast, Hidden Forces is great. For daily trends and trading, uh, we look to our friend Tony Greer at TG Macro. We love Luke Roman's uh, Forest for the Trees, um, Jesse Felder, you name it. Uh, too many to name, and I'm sure I've left out a few. Please don't be insulted. But yeah, we, we prefer the non-traditional media um, versus the sort of mainstream media. Mm. And that's where we get a lot of our news quickly and where we get a lot of inspiration for our pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And a few names that will be familiar with some Opto listeners as well in there. Uh, question three, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date? So a pretty tricky one, but is there one memory that, that sticks out for good or bad? I would say the day that we realized how big Doomberg could be. And it was literally a day we were looking at this problem in entirely sort of constrained way. And when we relaxed a, a certain critical assumption about our growth rate and when to turn on the paywall and what we could do to feed it um, was a real aha moment for us. And, and thankfully, it has played out as planned and we have a, achieved personal sovereignty, but much more so than my corporate career or my education or the other accomplishments in my life. Um, Doomberg is the thing I am personally most proud of and not by a, a short measure. Mm, yeah, fascinating. Okay, well, up an ultimate question. If you could go back in time, give us a top tip for your younger self. I would actually relax my somewhat maniacal focus as, as a young person on avoiding mistakes. Mm. Because um, I've learned that if done correctly, if you have a proper mistake management protocol, you can accelerate your learning through trial and error with a bit more risk tolerance. I'm a defensive pessimist by nature um, and um, worked very hard. Um, you know, I, I grew up relatively poor and uh, was, was very ambitious as a child. And my objective was to climb my way out of poverty by working as hard as I could in the most traditional ways and working tirelessly to avoid mistakes. And wrong is where the right is found is, 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 a, is a great phrase that stuck with me. And, um, you know, uh, if you get stuck in a, in a, in a loop of, uh, of obsessive perfectionism, you, you rob yourself of some truly great opportunities to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a fantastic message to nearly end the podcast on, but we've got a final question. This is the the opto question, I suppose. We aim to speak to investors or even thinkers, publishers doing things differently. So we ask all of them, what do they think is an investor's best source of alpha if you had to narrow it down to one thing? Uh, themselves. And we, we, in fact, have put our money where our mouth is. Um, we don't invest in public securities, by and large. Uh, we may dabble a little bit in a trading account here and there. But the vast majority of our excess savings are invested in private deals where we can personally uh, impact the outcome mm. uh, using what we call sort of sweat alpha, leveraging our contacts, leveraging our experience, leveraging our, our skills and talents in building a business, which we've, you know, we originally started Doomberg as kind of a showpiece for our consulting business. And the aha moment I was telling you about earlier was when we realized this could be the thing we do. And so, yeah, we, we cannot beat the market uh, personally. 
we have good pattern recognition, but translating that into successful trading are two completely different skills. Mm. Um, I know the answer to the first question because I'm a, a perpetual victim of it or was uh, when I was trading my own. And so um, we have experienced outsized returns. That's not for everybody. You have to be an accredited investor in the US, for example, and finding the right deal flow can be challenging. And there's a lot of sharks in the private world and we've had many zeros, um, but the the ability to have a multi-bagger uh, more than offset your duds and so on uh, is very high if you do it right. And we make highly, highly concentrated bets in private enterprises where we have significant advantages because we know and can work with the management team. And, and that's what we've decided works best for us. It's not for everybody, but for us, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating insight to end on. I'm glad I asked the question more. I think that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the Opto Sessions podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, welcome to the opportunity and, and happy to come back anytime uh, you'll have us. Aiden, it was great. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.